0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org.
2: Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now.
3: We talk about food We talk about music With musical dudes Finger on the bull Snacky tune
4: Welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are out in Santa Monica at the legendary Michael's Santa Monica. Uh, welcome to the show, Michael McCartney, Chaz McCartney, and Miles Thompson. Um, it's stunning out here.
5: Well, it's glad to have you guys here.
4: I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. I wish, this is just like the, you see, you know, I remember the first time we came out here. We walked out, we were out in the patio, and I was like, damn. <laughs> I was like, this is a restaurant. Um you've been here for a few years. Yeah, you've just been, a few. Just a few. Um it's it's crazy enough that you guys have been here for so long that you've had like different eras of a restaurant. Yes. Um I would probably say the amount of restaurants that have opened and closed since your opening yeah. you could probably build a country out of <laughs> and have nothing but restaurants. Um but now that you have Miles manning the ship in the back and Chaz, your sons up front michael what's it like to look back on like
5: years i'm sorry that's not fair decades yeah we're in our fourth fourth decade oh actually almost in our fifth i mean that's crazy yeah but it's been a fantastic ride you know this is uh this is what the beauty of california is uh you know i grew up on the east coast ironically miles and i have a very similar background we both grew up in westchester county oh nice we both had parents that loved to entertain and cook and eat and they had friends that did the same thing, and, and and my mother and father were just like that. They were they were wild. They uh, had a great group, and there was always a party. So I yeah. always looked at it as when I when I went away to France the first time, I'm 16 years old, going to a program in Brittany. What year is this? This is in 1969. Okay. So I'm not even right. I don't even think my parents had met yet. Right. So this is what I'm saying. I go into New York City yeah. with my father and my mother and his best friend, and we eat in a restaurant called Laurent. Aye. Now, Laurent, at the time, in any city, major city in the United States or the world, that matter, were doing Escoffier-based cooking. Sure. So your, 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 your job, sort of like the Olympics, your job was everybody does exactly the same. They just yeah. do it a little better. Yeah. But they cook exactly the same. Yeah. And uh, Laurent was one of those Maxime-esque sure. uh, restaurants that right there you immediately see... The wood modern, the beveled glass, the tuxedoed waiters. You've
4: been there before, but it's, you've never been there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
5: So I see this. I'm sitting in there. We're having dinner. And I watch at the end of the meal, my parents and, and uh, his friend, they argue over the bill. And uh, uh, and at the same time, I'm, I'm watching this transaction, this interaction going in. In comes the owner. And the electricity level in this room went through the roof. Yeah. So it was a combination of watching uh, my parents' parties. Yeah. Turned into a business, sure, but also a show and a, a, a fantastic experience. Yeah, I mean, it's,
4: um, I mean, food during that time, restaurants, yeah, um, it is not glamorized like the way it is today. Exactly. Like today, if, if I went home and I was like, all right, I'm becoming a chef. Yeah. My parents were be like, oh, that's great. You're going to be on TV. You'll be all over Instagram, things right, like that. Right.
5: But back then, it was very, I mean, it was blue-collar work. It was yeah. not glorified. It was like... No, it wasn't a career for yeah. American Young men and women in America that were Americans yes. did not go as a career choice into the restaurant business as chefs at all. No, it was very much like an immigrant the, story. Exactly. They yeah. were all from, and, and, and fortunately, in an yeah. odd way, most of the people that owned the top restaurants in Boston, Chicago, L.A., New York, all of which were basically the same restaurant, yeah. Based on okay. Le Pavillon, you yeah. know, basically, since 1939, um, we're, were hotel and restaurant school trained in Switzerland or in England or in France or in Germany. Very few Americans were in the business. Yeah. Uh, but that next morning, I got on a boat to go to France. And from it was New York. From New York, and it was a student boat, and I can tell you it was a student boat because it took 11 days to get there. Sure. That's good news. Because you made it? Because we made it. No, no, because it was 11 days of the wildest time you would ever imagine. Oh and God. it was an Italian... Run boat, mm. and the beauty of this boat was all of these hot-looking Italian waiters. Yeah, five meals a day, even though it was students, mm. and it was this whole dolce vita, the whole Italian thing yeah. that you didn't see in America. Right, you didn't see that because Italian restaurants sucked in America in the '70s. Right, because you were getting the French experience when it was fine dining. Exactly, yeah. and so this was this other fantastic thing. And then I land in France, and I go to Brittany. Brittany's a fantastic coastal peninsula that's absolutely over-the-top food-wise, selfish, everything. You can't believe it. Yeah. But I also lived in a family there that was totally into the party scene. They were a folklore company. I'm you know, seeing a theme. A theme here. Of party and good time. and Party, hosting. good time. You I mean, know,
4: here's the thing. Your parents, family, yeah. they're either into hosting, and I'm sure you can say this about your dad. <laughs> they're either into hosting or they're not. Right Like some, some people Are not gregarious like that Some people are like This is my house Right I don't want people in it Yeah Or some people go Door's always open There's right. always a meal Yeah I grew up in More the
6: merrier his family. If I could only like fully point out how insane they are. <laughs> yeah. Like the way that we just went up to see them last week. And his mom's ninety five. Yeah. <laughs> and she still just parties so it drinks me under the table every Good. single time. But that's the way. I yeah. feel like yeah. it should
4: be. You should never be able yeah. to outdrink the generation above you. Right. I, I think that's right. <laughs> so you're in. You're in France. Right. I mean, you study. I mean, the the where you went. You went to the top schools there. Yeah. But what. What brings you back to not, you know, what brings you back to California? And- well, that was it.
5: I, after I graduated, after I did that class, that one year in Berkeley, yeah. that's where I learned about the hotel and restaurant schools, cooking school. We didn't have cooking schools in America like no. you have today. The CIA was a afterthought for the vets. Yeah. You know, I have the cookbook from the original CIA. Take the number 10 can, open it up, bring it to a simmer. Sir. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So. Uh, and I bet you people still got it wrong. They probably got it wrong. <laughs> but from there, I came back. My mother said, you got to get a high school diploma. And then I went back to Paris, where yep. I learned about the schools. And I went to the hotel and restaurant school, which is where you would go if you were a yep. French kid. I was a little older. I was 17. They were all like 15. But it was a riot. And then I also went to the Cordon Bleu at the same time. Yeah. And this is the first half of the 70s. And then I went to the Academy du Vin, which Stephen Spurrier, I don't know if you saw the movie Bottle Shock. Yep. Yeah. That Well, Alan played my teacher, uh, Stephen. Huh. So I did all. And in those days, by the way, in the wine business, talk about simple. Yeah. You had Bordeaux, Burgundy, Loire, and Champagne. Yeah. Maybe they discussed the Cote du Rhône, and that was it. There yeah. was no Italian wine discussed. No. Because they didn't make good Italian wine in those days. Remember, this is the '70s. Man, Italy really so just fell off. I they, think. For, well, for a couple decades. Not until '85 did they come back. Yeah. That's a whole other story. That's a whole other story. Yeah. But at any rate, so then when I decided when I was when I was finished, and graduated. And what year I had is a little this? bistro in 1974. Yeah. I had a little bistro and on, on, that I was running Uh, on Ile Saint-Louis, and that's where I began to develop my style of modern American food based with the important thing of learning the Escoffier-style cooking, but being in Paris during those four or five years when the Nouvelle Cuisine revolution was exploding. When Michel Gerard was just beginning his... uh, uh, Our our graduation present to ourselves was we ate with the two Gros brothers. Then we went over to see Paul Bocuse. Then we went to La, La Pyramide. While we were at La Pyramide, the mother, because he had died earlier, yeah. the mother said, "You have time to go to one more restaurant because this guy's the best." And I said, "Where is it?" Well, it's in Switzerland. And I said, "Well, you know, uh, yeah, but it's right over there. You could just get there yeah. shortly." So we went to Freddie Girardet. Fine. And that was sure. sort of like, "Hello, we got." Sure. it. Then I sure. called up my mother and I said, "All right, what are we doing here?" My father, they, they had moved to Malibu, California. Okay. So in seventy. Five, I moved out here to Malibu, California yeah. and, and I walked into this in December into Michael's I, we, no, no, no into this weather oh, into, okay. this, into Malibu and said this is where I'm going to do it
4: oh yeah I mean, it's well, I mean let's talk about the culinary scene in Santa Monica, Malibu, in seventy-five, what was the what was it like back then?
5: Well, there 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 was one. <laughs> okay, you know, you had again the same scenario that we talked about.
4: Was it was there high end because you know when you talk about the high end cuisine of New, you know, you always hear French in New York. Yeah, like same that. thing
5: here. And it, you you had yeah. five restaurants, and the best one and the most intelligent chef about the whole thing was Jean Bertrand at L'Hermitage, yeah. and he was beginning already beginning to. Understand and embrace nouvelle cuisine, but change it into the next level, more realistic. You had La Rangerie, had Saint Germain, you had L'Hermitage, yeah. you had the old guard, Chasen's, Scandia, Perino's, the famous continental Italian restaurant. You know that's that's what that was, and and uh, uh, that was it. There there was. Uh, Au Petit Café was the beginning of uh, it. Sort of like it was a Michaels, mm-hmm. and uh, he he began to train a generation of uh, of waiters that went out and opened restaurants. So for example, Le Restaurant Saint Germain, L'Hermitage, yeah. Le Dome. Yeah, they all work there. So it's, all f- uh, all French, all French. <laughs> yeah,
4: I mean, so when you start the restaurant and you yeah. have this vision. Um, did you have a clear vision of what the food was going to be? Obviously it's changed over f- 4 decades, but what was it like to try and open a nice a high-end restaurant that wasn't classic French?
5: Well, the the, the it was easy because you see what I've been developing yeah. over over these years was a style of cooking. Remember all those restaurants we talked about? They did 50-60 yeah. people a night. Yeah. And when I found, I always it took me 2 years to find this location, to find the yeah. space and and this this street was Tumbleweed City. The mall was closed. The, uh, I mean, the Third Street Promenade. Yeah. Tumbleweed time, you know. And But I had to have a garden. I had to have an outdoor space. Sure. Was all those restaurants we talked about, they were all indoor restaurants. Right. Um, you know, except for Ma Maison, which had its, uh, its shed out there, kind of a deal, its tent. Sure. Um, it, it was all an indoor experience. And so to, to do this correctly, I already decided to live in Malibu. I wasn't going to drive into Beverly Hills, which was where the food scene was. And when I walked around this, this was a pub called the Brigadoon. Mm. And so there was a sense of feeling in there that was fantastic. You know, as nutty as those pubs are, it really was. It glowed, basically. I walked around the corner, I saw this backyard, which was derelict, and and I said, this is it. Yeah. Cool little California bungalow, backyard. This is going to be the new Michaels. So let's talk about those early years. Yeah. So you get it open. What year does it open?
4: 1979. Um, and... What were those first five years like? Because you know,
5: what was it like to be doing the type of food I here? How did people respond? Right? How did you keep the doors open? Well, that 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 was again. There's all kinds of planets in a row, kind of a thing. Yeah. You had uh, a very interesting time where I had spent two years before with Jean Bertrandou as my partner in a duck farm, because we started to sort out ingredients mm-hmm. and what was good and what was bad and what was local and what we could find. And uh, it was pretty bleak. Yeah. Uh, you know, in 1979, most of the fish you bought from your food, from your food purveyors was frozen. Mm. Uh, none of the meat was aged. Yeah. Aged. Today, you know, people age up like nine million years. Yeah. And there, none. None. <laughs> this is from the uh, prehistoric era. Yeah, the the, the And, and the, the only thing really fantastic as a product was yeah. their steak. Yeah. And once I convinced, you know, a superior, Frank... Yeah. To age it, it became a a fantastic product. And I said, 28 days. That's what I've done myself. This is the way to do it. Four weeks. Not less, not more. So you guys are helping shape the distribution network and helping
4: people. But you're also giving, you know, because when you ask people, farmers and producers, to change the way they do it, you need to be like, I will buy. It's like futures. I'm going to buy this. I will buy this for you. Not only that.
5: Not only that, we provided the seeds. Sure. You know, up in Oxnard, in Imperial Valley, in northern Mexico. Uh, you know, where the wine country is right now, that, that whole area, and the Imperial Valley, which is east of San Diego, yeah. the San Joaquin, obviously, San Fernando. Our first salad was San Fernando Valley Greens, you know, because we got a guy to plant that. We brought in all the seeds from France. Um, and, and, and again, we would bring – I brought everything in from France. My biggest mistake in life was not finding, you know, FedEx. That's what I should have been yeah, yeah. doing. Because you're just we, smuggling them in. Yeah, I mean, from during the duck days, you know, before I opened the restaurant, my my mentor on the ducks was from Australia, mm. and he said, "You ever had any John Dory?" And I said, "You mean like Saint Pierre?" And he says, "Yes. Well, we have it here." Wow. So, I'd get Saint Pierre and Rouget from New Zealand and from uh, Australia. Boys, those boys and berries. That's why i was so thrilled to see them. Olala berries, blackberries, raspberries. Because again. Of sort of a kid, I say, you figured what? You mean you got these in season? I forget that when it's winter here, it's summer there. Sure. So it was like unbelievable. That's and, and the same thing for France. We brought all the cheeses in. We brought all the fish in. This was way before local. People talk about farm to table. We had to build the farms huh. to get to farm to table.
4: So when you're so now you're open for a few years. And what was you know, I mean, what were those middle before we you know before. You start thinking about, like, the legacy and the
5: next act and things right. like that. Like, what were those middle years like? Well, the, again, the, the, what we set up in the beginning, like I said, there weren't any cooking schools. Yeah. So if you, if you, we had to train everybody. So the yeah. school, the, it started as almost a school. And as I've explained, you know, you're, you're learning from the guy on the right and you're teaching the guy on the left. Yeah. Or the girl. Sure. Uh, and, um, and, and so many things were accomplished here in the very beginning. The style of cooking, the mm-hmm. ingredients, raw, ba- raw diver scallops from Maine with a puree of heirloom beets and French olive oil in 1979. You know, you had to go. What I realized on everything that we did was creating a menu and designing the dishes, curating the dishes, then training my first opening staff, which was Ken Frank, Jonathan Waxman, Mark Peel, Billy Flug. No, I don't and know Jimmy Brinkley, are, And Jimmy Brinkley. I've never, never heard, heard of, of him, right? N- no one. Billy was the best one, and he's not with us anymore. I know. He was a fantastic chef. Uh, and this was the best lunch place in town, because as it sorted out over the first nine yeah. months, he was a lunch guy. Yeah. Jonathan became the chef, Ken left to open up north, Yeah. and Mark became his, you know, chef de cuisine, and Jimmy Brinkley, who was a fantastic American, who, like, I spent six months with him redesigning all of my French menus of yeah. all the pastries and desserts to Americanize them. In other words... Less booze, less sugar, making them more tasty. It's again we did everything like that, whether it was the, the, the chickens, you know, the the, the the duck that we grew, we had our own duck farm. You know, everything was to say, how do you take what we've got here and modernize it? And and so I curated this entire menu, we began the collaboration with these chefs, but within months I realized that this was where I had to be. Yeah. Because going out to the dining room yeah, and explaining what arugula was to people, yeah. not only just one kind. It but was an education. Treat. It was. The, what do you mean you eat raw scallops? You don't cook the scallops, right? You don't try it. You're try gonna love it. this. And again, the wine thing. Fortunately, I had a fantastic wine guy, Phil Reich. But again, so that was this whole process, and that went on for years. Yeah, almost ten years. Wow. And uh, then, bit by bit, we had another generation. Nancy Silverton came to work here. Sure, she was my night cashier. She was then the night producer of the sorbet's and production and then she was assistant pastry, then she was the pastry chef. Then I sent her to France to work with Poilin and with the lenotte at the school there. With Jimmy too at the same time. And then of course Mark and Nancy went on to open the first Bago. Yeah. In the in the in the mid eighties there. But again, it continues to be that and it just worked itself, always evolving. Yeah. Always evolving. Well we're gonna take a quick break.
4: We're going to talk about the evolution. We're going to talk about uh, Chaz, you coming to work in and just keeping this. And then Miles, we're going to talk about what it means to pick up the mantle of a restaurant that's been around for four decades and how to keep it true to itself and then bring
5: it to the new generation. Yeah, well, this is what's fantastic about this. This yeah. is a, a absolute continuation of the thread. And, you know, it's just it, – it, it, it couldn't be better. We have had such a blast – We've had the good, the bad, and the ugly, but it's such a blast, and we're just poised to really run this game for a while. The food is fantastic, what Miles is doing.
4: It's amazing. Well, we're going to talk a little bit more after the break. We have a song from the archives on Snacky Tunes here on heritageradionetwork.org. Org. (laughs) Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Uh, We are out here in Santa Monica at Michael's, four decades in, of a restaurant. Um, And so, uh, Michael, 20 years in, 30 years in, when do you start thinking about, okay, we're going to be here for a while. When do you start um, thinking about how we're going to keep growing? When
5: do you start thinking about bringing Chaz in? Well, first of all, a lot of things happen... Like habit stance, yeah. You know, if just to go back one second, yeah. The the big middle years were in '92 when we yeah. had the complete meltdown of LA. We had the the, the riots after the verdict of yeah. Rodney King. We had the the uh, huge fires that burned the whole joint down. Then we had the earthquake right after that. We had the end of the construction industry. We had the end of the aerospace industry. Ending up, the good news is in 30 months we took care of business with with OJ's trial. Yeah. you know so. So within those months, everything disaster occurred. Yeah. But that's what gave me the moment to say, "What are we going to do next?" Because sure. we had to shut everything down to a very small schedule. We were only open five nights a week. No brunch. No Sunday nights. We and and I and I went out there and walking in my door was David Rossoff mm-hmm. and Sang Yoon, mm. and they were my opening team, January 1995. And I sat down it's with like the
4: start. It's like you're you're
5: yeah. a sports team. You're like, yeah. all right,
4: this year on the roster, yeah. this is who we've drafted. <laughs> Got a new
5: young guy coming in. Yeah. And there were a lot in between there, between yeah. between of the course. opening crew and that. But but we sat down because again, because you ask what happened or what it, sometimes nature yeah. tees it up. And that's what happened, because we sat here, this building was almost destroyed. If we hadn't rebuilt it the way we rebuilt it when we first did it, it would have yeah. been gone. You know, right. we put in huge we're to open up that space. We had to put in giant columns and girders and things like that. And so we sat down and we said, okay, what are we going to do next? And we created another version. Now, this is uh, how many years after the 95? So that's almost 16 years after we've been open. And we reinvented this restaurant. And just so you understand, then we can flip forward. Yeah. That game ran all the way until the fourth quarter of 2008. Hmm. And it just got better and better, and we had more chefs coming in, yeah. people you know, doing their whole thing, and it was fantastic, all within the same theme. So you remember, that's sort of why we've been here, because I had this vision, and we kept this vision of the overall experience of all the components of the front of the house, the back of the house, and the space. Uh, all the way up until 2008, and that's when it was nuts. Yeah, when the financial... When the Lehman Brothers and Bernie Madoff sealed the deal for the end of the uh, world. I think he really did. Out here. He did. No, yeah. There um, Now, Chaz, did you grow up in the restaurant? Like, how
4: often were you here as a kid? So I was like the four-year-old at the
6: table with a bunch of 55-year-olds. Yeah. You know, I, would, I was... I didn't have an iPad. I didn't have crayons. I kind of just sat there quietly and stared up in the space as a bunch of crazy friends of my parents you know members of Devo and artists were just had no interest in talking like you know they, they dug my psychedelic five-year-old brain but yeah they, sure. like couldn't so I just I kind of watched a lot and I would fall asleep in the bar amazing on the couches we had at the time and i would come here after school and i would get picked up by mike three hours late after he had a big lunch somewhere (laughs) And, and i just i observed you know i was kind of a little daydreamer and then you know i would have three days off from school in seventh grade and Mike would throw me on the line or something or have me prep beats and I'd cut up my fingers and Fair then, enough. Yeah, say, fuck this, I'm never doing it again. And... But when did it change? So I, came, I I worked here off and on very briefly, but I spent a lot of time here observing. Mm-hmm. And I had no real restaurant experience. I came back after college. Uh, we'd gotten h- killed by the recession. And it seemed kind of like some challenge. When I graduated, you know... Santa Monica kind of, this is 2011, Santa Monica had for rent signs everywhere. There was yeah. Tumbleweeds. It was kind of a return back to 1979. Yeah. Nobody really gave a shit about it. Food was changing in this way where, like, you would go to Animal. You know, I was 21. I'd yeah. go to Animal. I'd see this kind of aggressive, no art on the walls, like, this style of change, like, service that was, you know, didn't really seem to care about you. It was just about, like, moving through. And Michaels at the time had, like, green velvet chairs, white tablecloths, Absolutely nobody in it. Style of food had changed, as he yeah. would Yeah, And San Marco was changing. Restaurants were closing left and right. So I kind of stood around and looked around. And, you know, I was... My head wasn't in the restaurant. Five years later, I live in a bunch of different places, work a bunch of jobs, kind of keep crossing things off the list. I have, like, this neuroses. I can't sit down. Yeah. I can't sit down and do an office job. And I can't not interact with people. That was a big part of it, so... It's in your blood. It's, so in, blood. Around, it's in your blood to host. So around, <laughs> yeah. like... 2015, you know, after four years of me dropping by the restaurant, I'm living in the opposite side of town. I'm living in Echo Park. I'm like, seeing those restaurants, nothing is blowing my brains yet. I hadn't been to Alamed. Um I, I, you know, I come in every once in a while. I'm like, Michael, what, what's the music you're playing? Right. Michael, what are you doing with this menu? Like, Michael, why are you playing this music? That what was music? Like,
4: what music was he playing?
6: I came in and I sat at that table in that corner table 36, and they were playing dubstep. And it was just like, I was like, no, 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 Michael, we need to change the music. Mike's like, nobody cares about the music. They like the food. And I'm like, we need to change the music. You know, like, what's going on? I remember being a kid and there would be Chet Baker and Miles Davis playing. Classic. People, you know, the waiters were dancing through the hallway, essentially. There was so much movement, choreography. And, you know, I I got to this point, like, I finished up one of my jobs and I was like, all right, I'm coming back. Like, I you're not gonna listen to me. Like, let's do this. If we're gonna do it, if we're gonna revitalize this, let's do it right. Let's kick the doors down. I'm like a face your trauma, go into the desert, take a bag of mushrooms. Work <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, work and it out, work it out. And, yeah, you put on some chet Baker and take Housework. Some mushrooms. Housework. And so we, you know, we we kind of came back, and I saw that there was m- need for movement and staff. So we started scouting manager, private party planner, started, you know removing some elements of it that just needed to be removed, bringing some new ones in, bringing a new style to it. But what we were looking for was a chef. yeah, And a chef who could really kind of return it back to this rather interesting and, and uh, interestingly curated style and point of view that very much went along with our personality. And yeah. always
5: part of the progressive yeah. aspect of the restaurant. Well, I think
6: a big part of that was like we didn't want to be like a glorified bistro. Of we didn't course. want to be a happy hour place. That wasn't our personality. Yeah. That's what the neighborhood kind of was turning towards, but we knew that we needed our neighborhood, but we needed to become and return back to what we were.
4: Yeah. Now, Miles, uh during this time you were at some of those restaurants Animal, son of a gun. So you were part of that I would say LA Revolution I would say that was definitely and I know that from being on the east coast those were the restaurants and those were the names that were popping up that started having everyone go like okay LA like you're making a move what was it like to be part of that
7: scene? Oh man it was totally magical I mean the way that I started working at Animal was my chef and mentor Alex Becker when I worked at Nobu basically came up to me one day and pretty much told me to go work for John and Vinny. Get out of here. He was like, you know, they're opening another restaurant, right? I saw him at the farmer's market. You're gonna drop your resume off? Yeah. I mean, he knew, I'd been to the restaurant. We went, I was like invited into like the sous chef circle with Alex and his chef Jason and Kim and the, the, uh, uh, not that one, the GM. Like we all went to Animal one night at like one in the morning because they were open super late. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, I remember seeing like Vinny up in the office walking around and there was this kind of like Holy light around it. Yeah, oh, like, yeah, yeah. I wanna, I wanna. I was like, this is the, the kind of food that I want to learn and cook and all this. And and he's like, you got to do it. So obviously, I was like, yes, chef. And I went home that night. You know, after uh, probably like who knows some long night of service. It wasn't the weekend, and, and I, I went to go to Animal and the, and the next day, and I I went up there around two o'clock in the afternoon, and and uh, I saw the hosts in there, and there was like the chain link. Like, gate that comes yeah. down, and like trying to like reach through and like knock on the windows. Like, I can I get, a, I get a job? Yeah, and uh, so I, I gave them my resume and I just hoped for the best and got a call. And you know, long story short, I ended up working for those guys, and it was it was awesome. Like, I remember working at Animal the night that they broke 200, like the night that like that was the first night that they did over 200 covers. And the restaurant 54C restaurant, that's doing bonkers. four turns. I mean, we were just getting crushed. I remember like. I, I there. The, I worked a station called The Pit because it's yeah. in a corner Could get like 115 degrees a double french top and you'd pick up like all the meat and the fish dishes and then like the poutine and uh, you know kind of set up some of the sauces for like the foie dishes and stuff like that and I just remember getting killed in there and just loving it like just give me more give me like, more yeah bury me bury more. me, bury it, me. Just hit me more you know, tickets like, yeah. nine poutine deep three fish yeah. six steaks like what's gonna happen next um And uh, I just love the food, and I love the camaraderie, and I I love that everyone who was there was like, you know, 45 year old grizzled line cook who'd who'd been through everything and been an executive chef on like a private island off of Nantucket, and like just wanted to work for these guys. And then a kid from Kansas who like made the dirtiest flapjacks you ever had in your life, (laughs) and but was like the best line cook with the most style you've ever seen. And just all these guys, it was just this. I love the fact that it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you had ever been to culinary school. Yeah. It just mattered that you, for lack of a better term, gave a fuck and, like, just wanted to be part of something that was really progressive and cool. And, and if you had an interest and a point of view and you wanted to taste delicious food, you could work there. And that was what it was all about. That's um, amazing.
4: Now, when did you start... When did you first hear of Michael's? Or did you always know about it as being um, a chef in the L.A.
7: scene? I always knew about Michael's. I mean, I had a... You know, I had a proclivity for reading menus all the time and, and for just like searching online for like, what's the best restaurant in Santa Monica? What's the best restaurant in Culver City? What's the best this? What's the best that? And i would always see, Michael's would always come up, you know, early in my career when I was in Los Angeles and I was always curious and I was always thinking, I should, I should get there. I got to see what this is all about, but I had never eaten in the restaurant. Um, But and I knew the story and the history and it was fascinating. So I've always known about it.
4: Yeah. Um, and how did, um, so you were cooking at these restaurants, and you were over in Echo Park at um, Alumet, um, and where did you guys all meet? Was it in Echo Park, or I know that you had left L.A. for a little bit. How did you guys all start talking?
7: Well, I was down in the Caribbean. I was uh, working on a small island called St. Kitts, which is like a very, very, the smallest independent nation in the world, St. Kitts and Nevis. You know, the small. It's you know, basically a 40-square-mile island with, you know, 46,000 people Living on it hmm. I was My wife and I Were basically Developing a Food and Hospitality program For a High level resort There And um, The job was Just kind of Ending Yeah you know, The kind of Things changed And uh, I Sent out some Texts to Kevin Meehan And uh, Zach Pollock, And I was like Do you guys know Anyone that Is looking for a Chef or a CDC or Executive Or someone's Doing something Cool Yeah You know I'm Looking to come Back to Los Angeles and you know, I love California. I've always loved Los Angeles. And and then uh, Zach, Zach actually emailed both yeah. of us yeah. and got us in touch. And Kevin said, you know, Michael's is looking for a chef as well. And uh, so then we just started talking. And we, I sent a resume, you know, CV and everything over. And said, when are you going to be in town? And I was going to be in L.A. for a vacation. Um, so we sat down right at that table over there. And we went to the farmer's market. Yeah. Wednesday yeah. morning.
5: When, I, when, I, when I finally called him on the phone, I said, "So where are you now?" He said, "I'm in LA." I said, "Great. What are you doing Wednesday morning? What's Tuesday night?" I said, "What are you doing tomorrow?" And he said, "I said, let's go to the market." Yeah. So Chaz and I met him here at 7:30, and already I knew this was the right move. Why? Because within five seconds, Chaz and Miles were walking down, talking like this, and yeah. Gramps was in the back here, <laughs> just sort of like going, "This is working. This is working. This is good." And then we hit the market, and this is sort of what we were talking about earlier with Instagram. Yeah. I hit the market and I watched the reaction of all of the farmers that I knew when they saw Miles coming out and embracing him. When the chefs that never speak to me, right, all All the hot young chefs with their tats and their this and their that, all look at Miles and go, oh my God, I don't believe it. And I knew the vibe was there. And in fact, to sort of do an interesting thing, I hired Miles without ever tasting his food. That's bold. But I saw... You saw his, he could shop, though. I saw, saw he, he could did. shop.
6: And also the the diligence and care that went into the way that he talked about products. I mean, a big part of what I... Also, there's a weird side story of 2000... When did Alameda close? 13? Uh, close in... What, what year is it now? 2017? Yeah. 2017.
7: Closed in 2000 and 14,
6: okay, dude. so I was living in Echo Park, 2014. I randomly, one day, check LA Weekly, see that this beloved Miles Thompson, whose restaurant I never went to because I didn't have any money, like was closing. And I, for some random reason, checked LA Weekly that time. I sent it to Michael, totally out of the blue, had nothing to do with the restaurant. And said, "This is the guy we should get." Three years later, he's the first name we get on the chef. Yeah, that's amazing. Search. It's yeah. fun.
4: It's funny how it works like wow. that. Yeah. That's so, nice so let's um. <laughs> So you've kicked down the doors, right? You change the music, no more dubstep, <laughs> thank you. Um,
5: I miss my dubstep. <laughs> um, you know,
4: there's no more velvet chairs. There's no more white tablecloth. Right. Miles is now in the kitchen. Right. What is it like to be in this? I mean, I don't even know. I can't even put. I know you earlier said third act. That's not fair. This is like yeah. this is like Macbeth. It's like yeah. act five, Back act five, six, act yeah. seven, like. How does it all come together and what's the response been?
5: Well, you have to also understand that when we sat with Miles, yeah. we said, again, just like when I sat with Sang Yoon and David Rossoff, I said, what are we going to do here? As a, this always has been a collaboration sure. thing. Chaz, Miles, what are we going to do here? I will give you the best sandbox you've ever seen here. Mm-hmm. And we gutted this place. We shut it for a month. That's we bold. gutted it. We put in the tables and the chairs and the garden. We modernized it. You can see we rehung the entire art collection, put in a new playlist. Yes. And Miles <laughs> trained the staff while we were closed every day that's on a new menu. That's huge. Front and back of the house. To learn off the clock. Yeah. I can only imagine how uh, amazing that's been. Yeah. Just and to teach them. It's a re education. Well, it was. But yeah. we made the decision we were going to do this. And the, and the rare thing about Miles,
6: too, is that he has an ability. An amazing ability to not only be, you know, a culinary creative genius and like a very progressive force in combining very wild yet not weird for the sake of being weird compositions on a plate. He understands people in a pretty amazing way, where he can do, you know, one lap in the garden and be like, "Why is this not like this? Why is this yeah. not like this?" Like he yeah. sees it. He understands people and is calm and patient with them in a way that a lot of cooks aren't. Miles, how does it feel to have?
4: To be the helm of a, a restaurant that's older than a good chunk of us at the table.
7: <laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where you appreciate it deeply, but you really try not to think about it too yeah. much. I just come in every day, and I I want to do the best that I can to honor the history. I mean, it, if I were to sit down and just like look through the photo albums, I would freak myself out. Yeah, you know, look look at who's been through here. Look at where they are now. It's it's incredibly. It fills me with a lot of you know. Joy and pride and hope um, for for my future, but it also fills me with a lot of you know excitement for what's happening right now yeah. because this is this is huge. This is a huge thing, and I've always heard about Michael's and I knew about you know the history here, and to be a, a part of it is just it blows my mind in a way that like if I think about it, I'm just gonna yeah. Out.
4: It's like being on the Lakers. Yeah. It's like you can't. Like, I can't think about Kobe. I can't think about magic. Right. You just got to play every night, right? Yeah. So, Michael, final question. Almost five decades in, what's it been like? How do you, where do you, how do you see another five decades in front of you?
5: Uh, Well, we'd have to get Silicon Valley working on the biomedical stuff for that. Yes. Yes. But uh, I'm there, and I'm sure they're working on it. Yeah. Uh, You know what? This restaurant has always evolved, it's taken its punches, it's recuperated it, it's come back, it's thoughtfully decided what environment are we in, where are we going to go with it, what can we do? We're not just tracing trends. And that was how we made it through all of this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there's a, the, the vast majority of the people that eat in this restaurant in the last nine months didn't even know this restaurant existed Because of the explosion of restaurants in this town. Mm -hmm. Echo Park, Silver Lake, downtown, Culver City, Venice, Santa Monica. So, yeah, maybe it was in the sort of the sphere out there, the ether. But the truth is, it's, you know, we received virtually no press for like 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, now, people are coming in. And again, as I said earlier, the generation. You know, Miles was 25 when he started now here we are 4 years later. The generation eating in all those restaurants are now 4 or 5 years later yeah. or 10 years later. That was no different than 79 when young Hollywood wanted a place of their own. You know, when you talk about Katzenberg and Eisner and Diller and Spielberg and Hanks, this was they were 30 years old. Yeah. This was their place. And it's it's continually happened through that. We've been able to manage as I say before. A restaurant is like a sailboat. You've got to learn to sail it in a gale force and in a dead calm. But you can always move it forward. And that's what we've done here. And this is so exciting. And Ronnie, our new uh, psalm, she's pulled a list together that is commensurate with what we call modern American food. Now, yeah. if you go back to the press in 1979, that's what we called it, modern American food. So it's sort of like here we are, 38, almost 40 years later, and we're doing the new version of modern American food. It's amazing. Well, all of you, congratulations. Thank you. It's amazing. It's very
4: rare to be able to sit in a a restaurant that's been open and continues to grow and look forward. Um, I wish you all the best another 40 years <laughs> and uh, we have another song uh, where can people actually before I even toss to that where can people find you online are you guys
5: on Instagram uh, oh yeah we have a huge Instagram account a huge, huge. Twitter feed huge, huge. Uh, what's the other thing Facebook yeah but more importantly go to the website Michael's MichaelSantaMonica.com there's a fantastic photograph that we'll show you when you oh through. I've seen it it's okay, amazing but have you seen how it works yes I've seen because how it flips it flips, <laughs> it I've flips seen the, to the new the new generation <laughs> yeah it's
4: always great well listen I can't thank you enough for opening up a place and having a place that has led to really so many amazing restaurants and really just helped influence the L.A. dining scene and beyond. Uh, We have a song from the archives on Snacky Tunes and then a live performance coming up in the other half of the show on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
1: Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes. Feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs. And try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org.
4: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have the Wayne Glass, a.k.a. Dream Crusher, here in studio. Welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hey.
2: How
4: are you? <laughs> I'm good.
2: This is so awkward.
4: Just look at me. Okay. We all make it easy. Boom. Boom. Yeah. It's a two-person connection. Eyes, boom. You grew up in Wichita, Kansas.
2: Yes, unfortunately.
4: What was it like <laughs> making music there, given you've spoken extensively about it, it was somewhat isolating? How did you begin to find your voice and figure out the music you were going to make, considering how... Solo of an endeavor, it seemed.
2: Um I don't know. I was... Wait, I should spit my gum out on the radio. That might help situation. Um Yeah, I, I was raised by a hippie mom and she was just like, do what you want. Like, like you shouldn't worry about what other people are doing because, like, it's one of those cities where, like, it's small enough to where everyone knows everyone, but unless you impress them, they don't act like... They they don't know you, you know what I mean so it's really easy to I don't know in in a way it's really good to feel that isolated because then you can really that's that's sweet thank you <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah you, it it gives you more of an opportunity to develop yourself in an insular way but it also fucks up your head like it, you could turn into Yondek and just chop your off or something, I don't know.
4: How did you That's get that. how did you discover noise music? Of all the music out there, how did that one find you and and how did what it what about it made you respond in the way that you did? Um well again my my hippie mom was like, you're
2: not gonna only listen to crisscross and fucking <laughs> another bad creation. There's like a lot of different kinds of music that black people came up with also. And like she came up with like all these crates of her like vinyl records that she's been collecting since she was a kid. And it was like Sun Ron, Miles Davis and shit like that. And uh uh, uh Delia Derbyshire I think is her, her name is. The first the person that came up with sampling hmm. or invented sampling. And um people like that and I don't know, it she planted a seed, grew a tree with lots of leaves in me, so like it sparked my curiosity. I'm I'm innately curious, which is why I have so many bruises. <laughs> but yeah that's that's kind of how it came up i have to note though i have to point this out i don't ever hear white noise artists being asked how they got into noise i think that's interesting not calling you out not calling you it's out. Not, i
4: would ask uh it's more the genre itself i like i think it's more because i don't listen to many noise artists and okay. it's so specific one of my best friends is also into noise and anytime you ask a noise artist about it they're like they just start listing all the references and like they, they're almost all noise artists are walking encyclopedias of the entire noise. thing. it's such a specific type of music uh, that I think that I would ask anybody who I would say this for (laughs) someone who grew up isolated in Wichita, Kansas, you picked a musical genre that was even more isolating than if you were like, Oh, I'm going to make hip hop records or I'm going to make R and B records. Like, no, how do I push people even further away just from the pure (laughs) sonic landscape so it's more that interest less like you're a black person making noise music out of Kansas true True.
2: yeah and I I will add like I didn't really know that many people that were into noise either
4: I mean no one does (laughs) unless you lived in Boston at a certain time
2: right yeah in Boston in a fucking like flea infested
4: right and like (laughs) with like eight other people and like it wasn't even lofted it was just kind of like mattresses
2: oh yeah Uh. mattresses with like sunspots on them and shit
4: how long did it take for you to develop your sound i mean you're inc- insanely prolific like how what, what was the record number five out of 30 or did you feel like you kind of tapped into it pretty pretty early on
2: um oh i will i will admit i was really trying to copy autiker ah, when i was when i was first starting starting out because that was when untilted came out mm-hmm. it's it's are you familiar mm-hmm. with that so i was obsessed with that record i was obsessed with confield too confield is my favorite record of theirs but like I was, like, super... I was into it enough to, like, try to emulate it, but I was also into Justice and Daft Punk and stuff like that. I was, like, trying to be normal. Yeah. This is all, like, early college. I think that was when I decided that dance music was boring, and I just started, like... Well, oh, well I'll go further back. Like, the first noise band, quote-unquote, I heard was Einstruzen in Neubaden, and... Uh I found it on M T V like they when MTV played music at one point.
4: And they played noise noise music too. Y- yeah. Y-
2: yeah, yeah. They used to have like the what is it called? AMP mm-hmm. and sometimes, very seldomly, they would play like fucked up shit. So like they would play um what's the guy's name? Not soft pink. Uh, grayish pink, I can't remember his name, he's like an Australian performance artist. They would play mostly performance art, in addition to fucked up music, and that was like my introduction to it, and then BBC America would also play, like, Live from Jules Holland, and then it'd be like, like, massive attack and shit like that. Um, But that, that like, really informed me, and then, when I got into college, I started to rediscover that stuff, because I wasn't in my mom's house with no internet, so, (laughs) it was like, I got reintroduced to that stuff, and it was like, It was easier for me to experiment with whatever programs I was using because I was remembering, oh, there are more possibilities than dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. There's also all these things in the spectrum of otherness that can inform you too. And
4: and you studied fine arts. Yes. Did that play into you crafting your identity and your music? Or how did the thinking of fine arts education play into the music that you made?
2: I just remember hating the curriculum so much that it made me want to like <laughs> go into my room and never come out and just like make the loudest fucking shit ever. But I had a professor. <laughs> I had a professor. Um, the first advanced uh, class I took, where you could you came up with your own shit. Um, wait, can we go? Okay. All right. How you doing? <laughs> Um, no, uh, one of my professors was like, oh, have you heard of DNA? I'm like, of course I've heard of DNA. He's like, have you heard of uh, James Chance? I was like, of course I've heard of James Chance. so we, like, became friends because of that. And he didn't know I made music. And uh, there was a place across the street from my university called Kirby's. What city it, is this? Uh, Wichita. Okay. And, um, yeah, it's it's fucking hilarious. It's a dive bar. like, But that's where I saw fucking... Um, Colondor, I think their name is. It's like a Russian noise artist that was like sewing a fucking contact mic into his chest. Like They ha- they booked the craziest shit in this like terrible dive bar that's right by a laundromat in the middle of nowhere, like that type of shit. And I was performing there one night, as I usually was, because that was the only place that I'd ever booked weird shit. And my professor was there, and he was like, what? You didn't tell me you did this. And I was like, I didn't. You, you grade my papers. I'm not going to tell you that. Um... But yeah, that was like at the point where, the two started to intersect. Because then, I think, just in full. Like I was, I I went back home recently and I have like boxes and boxes of sketchbooks. And I looked in them and I was like, oh, I've been drawing like, record covers and track lists for fake albums that have never been made.
4: Since I was like four. So, do you think that you had to put out so many records because you already had the artwork done? You're like, if I had the artwork done, I might as well make a record. (laughs) Kind of, yeah, 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 pretty much. Like, that album cover is really good. I just, I'll write like 10 tracks
2: and just get it out there. Yeah, yeah. I, no lie, like, when I was active on MySpace, I was uploading like an album's worth of material like every other week. Like, it was, it was like a little much. And like, I don't know how I passed high school.
4: I think that it's just, it's two different types of muscle memory. Yeah. You're just kind of like doing one thing. I don't think it's the same thing now. It's like you're pulling just from different things. Yeah, yeah, totally. Can we hear a song? Oh,
2: sure. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to play for us first? Um, I'm, so I want to give people that aren't, can't see me uh, a picture of what I'm looking at. I'm looking at the uh, a crowd full of people that are like, a can't afford this pizza. B probably live in like a really like, like can't afford to live in this neighborhood, and C like, would not make eye eye contact with me if I walked out completely naked. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So this first song is called "Shopping." It's like a new record, and it's about how consumerism turns you into a Nazi.
4: Here we go live on Snacky Tunes. Ha 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 ha,
2: ha. <laughs> ha 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 ha. Oh shit. Okay, how am I doing this? <laughs> Did I scare the kids
4: away? A mm, little bit. There's like uh, one child that ran off. Good. What brought you to New York?
2: Uh, I... Ooh, that's... I'm really close to the mic now. What the fuck is wrong with me? Um, I went on tour with a musician named uh, M.P. Lockwood that does um, a project called Radio Shock. Why am I sweating? Oh, because I was screaming into a mic for a solid five minutes. Um... Yeah, yeah, I went on tour with him. It was, like, only a week, and it was, like, an East Coast tour.
4: Um, Was that your first time out on the East Coast? Yes. And (laughs) What what did it look like to you?
2: It looked like the Midwest. Yeah. (laughs) Until I got to New York. I think, well, the first... That was the first time I was on a plane, too. It was weird. Um, But, um... What was I going to say? Yeah, I, I did a GoFundMe to do a tour... And I only got halfway, and he he had sent me a message saying like, "Hey, if you I, I know what it's like to like be in, be from a small town and like not be able to like get out." Yeah, and <laughs> and he was like, "Just come on tour with me." And like when the tour was over, he was like, "You can use the money that we got to go back home, or you can like stay here." And I looked and I was like, ah, 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 "I'm staying." But yeah,
4: it, yeah. And what was it? <laughs> I mean, I know the story has been told through like a million different people, but like, what did New York, what did New York look to you and what did it feel like to you when you got here?
2: Okay. So I was fucking scared as shit to be here because, um, a, my mom makes me scared of everything, but also, like, um, yeah, just like in my head, I thought it was like the warriors mm. <laughs> and like, it's not like that. Not like, even cl- Not anymore. Definitely not anymore. Um, but um, yeah, like when I when I got off the plane at LaGuardia, uh, we had a show at Silent Barn the same night, and like it was like Myrtle Broadway, and I'd never seen like that kind of a setup before, and like I was scared fucking shitless. I had all my shit and like my my backpack and all that shit, and I was just like, people are gonna like rob me. This is gonna be like fucking no. Not, actually, no, clockers too. <laughs> And <laughs> <laughs> it, it likes, like movies basically. And like, it, I, I just thought it was really cool. Like there's a lot of people at the first show.
4: Did you feel that people were more receptive to your music or like got it more immediate than people back home?
2: That's a good question. I feel like in general, I think New Yorkers are spoiled
4: and when I when I like in what way I mean it's sure but in what way <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I think because so many people and so many artists and people like that um, feel like they have to come here to make it they get to see everything right so nothing impresses them
4: I don't know if I'd go that to far to a certain extent yeah I would say that the the bar is a lot higher to get it but I also think that drives the artistry where it's you might have been really great where you were but when you come here people are like fine we've yeah. seen it but if you push yourself yeah yeah so do you think, like, hot shit coming in and they're like, yeah, okay, you're a noise band?
2: Great. Honestly, like, I was just scared because, I, I thought, A, I thought no one was going to show up, and B, I thought they were going to be like, this is stupid. Like, what are you doing? Like, you're a child. What are you...
4: <laughs> but I've also felt that New Yorkers, if you are... <clears throat> genuine and you are coming from the right place they're super receptive i mean they might not be like oh this is the best thing i've ever seen right but they'll say oh that's cool you're actually trying here's like four things you need to think about or here's two people you need to meet
2: yeah yeah i i definitely got that vibe i I just said vibe i'm almost 30 why am i doing that um i got that impression (laughs) when i first got here um Uh, someone that I really revere, Chris Hansel, was at the first show and he he told me it was really good and I almost like shit myself. I was like, oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Melts into chair. And yeah, uh, I played with uh, Ryan Martin, who does Deus Records, and Sadoff who's fucking brilliant. and Yeah, it was just weird. But I think I play here so often that people are just sick of me? <laughs> <laughs> so, like... Um, the first few shows when I when I was here um, felt, like, good to a certain extent. And then I think people just kind of, like... Right, oh, you're
4: playing again. They got spoiled. Hell yeah. They got oh spoiled. Yeah, totally. Can we hear another song? Uh, <laughs> what are you going to play for us?
2: Sure. Okay. Um... Uh this is a cover that's all I'm going to say. Ha. <laughs> Wait, let me see if this is actually on. <laughs>
4: in the 8 years that we've done this show you're one of the handful of artists that have written me to say come see my show first before <laughs> you interview me just to understand it what is it about the live show that gives context to dream crusher versus um, the recorded music
2: um main i think main the main thing is i was a visual artist before i was a musician so that's the two intersecting is really important to me and like I don't really like passive music or passive
4: visuals. Yeah, I would so. say that that show was not passive. <laughs> I think when I saw someone dragging you by your feet while you screamed into the microphone, <laughs> uh, almost like a mop on the floor of Pioneer Works, That I would define that as non-passive.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, a bitch is witted it if it's with it. How you doing? Yeah, I, yeah I, I usually... I get interviewed by people who are just like... Like heard about me on Pitchfork, and they're just like, oh, la, la, la. and then like, I think the only time that actually panned out where like someone had written an article about me before they heard anything or saw me live, they canned it after they saw me play because <laughs> they were like, that's not where
4: we're going. That's not what we thought. Yeah. And what leads does do the music? Does the music lead the visuals, or does sometimes the visuals lead the music?
2: I don't know.
4: Sometimes, well, with this particular record
2: that I'm working on, it was Music First, which is, I think, the first time that's happened since I've been in New York. Because I've only only put out two
4: actual records since being here. Um, Out of the 30 you've put out? Yes. Yeah. So only two. What (laughs) were the name of the two that you put out here? Um,
2: Hackers, all of them. Hackers was the first one. And then quid Quid Pro Quo was the second one.
4: So you're saying for the new one, the music is leading or is coming first?
2: Yeah, I um, the thing that I try to do with the new material I'm working on now is like be a little more overtly political, because like with uh, with the way that I identify and the way that I don't know my clinical depression and all that bullshit, um, I want to reach more people that look like me, no like identify the same way as I do, um, as non-binary, um, and that type of stuff. So I want to like be able to reach them with what I'm saying as opposed to just like being intentionally vague so it can reach everyone. Cause that's, it never works out that way because people are too stupid. So,
4: or it's too <laughs> blank or they just put their own impression on it. Oh yeah. You're like, please read the lyrics this time. Yeah. Yeah. I want people to know what I think. <laughs> when is the,
2: when is the record coming out or what's the plan for it? Um, I'm going to Beyonce it. I don't know.
4: Okay. It'll, <laughs> it'll be on MySpace at some point.
2: You know, MySpace, <laughs> Life, Journal Zanga, you know. Uh, and any tours this summer? Um, I just finished a tour with Show Me the Body, but I think once... I'm hoping that the next project, singular and plural, that I'm working on, I'll be on tour while I'm, that's happening. So maybe, I want to say fall or winter.
4: Okay. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to make sure we have time for one more song. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh. Thanks for tuning in this week. Uh, big shout out to Darren on the West Coast. If you like this, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Maybe leave us a review if you're feeling up to it. We are going to be back next week with a brand new episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you going to take us out with?
2: Um, another new one called
4: Poison. Thanks. Oh, and where can people find you? Follow you. Oh. Your Instagram game is super strong.
2: Oh, Instagram game on fleek. How you doing? Um, I'm trying to divorce completely divorce myself from all social media because it's it's. Oh it. well,
4: then in the limited time that you're still on <laughs> <laughing>. it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah yeah Facebook Instagram Twitter, uh, yeah live journals No Tumblr is like the main thing. I go on I'm on uh, I'm Drinkrum on Tumblr. It's Drinkrum with an E at the end. Like Not like the Maloko Milk Bar one, but the <laughs> one I made up because I was stupid and someone had already taken that username. Um, easiest way to get in touch with me is through Bandcamp. Please don't ask me to do things on social media. I'm not going to see it in time for it
4: to be relevant. So, Good advice. All right. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Close us out.
3: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks
2: for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.